<laughs> it's good to be here. When, uh, when, <laughs> when I got here this morning, I said to Bruce, I said, you know what, it's kind of a nice rainy day. Could we put the house lights down just a little bit? But now that I'm here, I can't see a thing. So <laughs> can we bring them up just a little bit? <laughs> it's good to see your faces. It is really, I mean, seriously, it's really good that I made it here this morning. I, uh, had a really good night's sleep, which isn't always the case. And so I wake up and I'm like, mm, Scott's gone already. He must have gone up for worship practice. And I'm like, boy, it's kind of light out. And then I look at my phone and it's 8.04. <laughs> and I'm like, 8.04? My alarm's set like for 7.15 because I, I at least need a half an hour. So 8.04 and I'm like, I'm like booking it to get ready to get here. 818, I am on the road, baby. So <laughs> I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. I showered last night, so just so you know. <laughs> you didn't need to know that, but now you do. <laughs> well, here's the vulnerability, right? We've been in this series of vulnerability for a long time now. And it seems like the Lord is keeping us here. He's keeping us here for a reason. He's keeping us here so that we could probably see what he wants to continue to reveal, that we could maybe practice what he's trying to teach us or show us. Um, But he wants to keep us here for just a little bit longer. And over the past weeks, we've been on this quest for vulnerability. And Brendan has very clearly said when we are expressing vulnerability or we're practicing it or we're trying to model it, that there's always a risk of pain. Does anyone remember him saying that? How many of you guys said, I'm out? When, they, when he said that, yeah. Uh, well, then the Lord just grabs us by the scruff of our neck and says, no, you're not. And so it also has this element of risk to it, doesn't it? That we think, what will happen if I do practice this, if I do try this? He told us, Brendan told us that he reminded us that our story is not our own, that our story is God's. And when we surrender our story to him, then we have a little bit easier time of easing into vulnerability because we're doing it out of obedience, because it's not ours. And if he asks us to share our thoughts, if he asks us to share our story, if he asks us to share with another person something that's going on for us, then out of obedience we can do that. And we can say, I don't know exactly where this is going, but I trust Jesus. But I trust Jesus. We learned about from Mark about being a good listener because in order to practice vulnerability and in, in, in our vision statement of building a safe place, we need to learn how to be good listeners. So we've been putting those keys on the back of your um, little insert every week so that we can keep them in front of us, so that we can say, boy, I'm really good at this one, but I'm not so good at this one. So how is it that we can continue to grow in being good listeners? We were told to resist making meaning. I don't know about anybody else, but that one, I have to really pay attention to that, that I don't make meaning out of something when I only see in part, when I only have a little bit. Do I immediately put them in a bucket? My daughter and I, we watch a a couple of house shows. One of them is Tiny Houses, and one of them is Property Brothers. And before we sit down, we have this disclaimer. This is a, we can judge freely here. And so... (laughs) 
when we watch these shows, we can sit there and we can talk about what they liked and what they didn't like and how they did things and how we would do things so much better and all of that. But in that context, we have this permission to judge freely. But when we're practicing vulnerability, we don't. We don't have that permission. We don't have permission to make meaning. We have permission to be good listeners, to be safe, to be with Jesus with them. Those are, those are the permissions that we have when we're doing this. And then last week, Brendan just brought us full circle and reminded us every morning, even if you wake up at 8.04, <laughs> to say, where are you, Jesus? I don't want to go through my day without you. He has to be first. He has to be the first thing we go to, the first thing we look to. He has to be the first one that we invite into this process. We need Jesus to help us gain understanding and perspective. We can't gain understanding without him. He has to be our first place to go. He has to be. So as I'm preparing for today, of course, you know, I am asking a rebellious question. Well, why are we even doing this? Why does any of this even matter? Why does it matter? And I just spent some time with the Lord, and I said, Lord, why does this matter? What do you want me to know about this? What are you saying to us? And here's some things that I think he wanted us to talk about today. This is like we're sitting in my living room having a conversation over a cup of coffee, which I haven't had yet, but I will get some. (laughs) But connection matters. Because we are designed to be connected to each other. We are designed to be connected to Jesus. That's a given. That's not on the table. It's first. It's foremost. It is the most important thing for us is to continue to develop our connection with Jesus. But we're also designed to be connected to each other. To relate experientially to each other. To not have this kind of proximity where we sit face forward, but to have proximity where we turn towards each other. We look each other in the eyes. We say, tell me about you. We say, how are you as a greeting here, but when we turn towards each other, we really mean, how are you? We have a friend, he'll ask us, actually, Scott was telling me this, was it yesterday? That when he sits with someone to have coffee, he asks him three times, how are you? Scott will give an answer. And then it would be, how are you? Scott will give another answer. And then the third time, how are you? The true answer really comes out, which could be good. It doesn't necessarily have to be negative, but it could be good. But we're created to have this, this close, emotional, spirit-to-spirit connection where Jesus becomes the center of all that we say, all that we do, a place where he becomes seen through us as we share our stories. It's imperative. It's directive. We find it in Scripture all the time. Draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Jesus modeled it for us about the way he ate with and and hung out with and, and did his days with and did ministry with his disciples. It was on a level of connection that we are designed to have. Because without it, it leads to loneliness. If we don't have this kind of connection that is a soul connection, we can find ourselves in a place of loneliness. And if you find yourself in a place of loneliness, it is a seedbed that can lead to all kinds of unhealthy places. Discouragement, despair, 
sin, temptations, things that we don't want to do that we do. It can lead to um, self-hatred. It can lead to depression. It can lead to, you know, it just... Loneliness can lead to a lot of places we don't want to go. But there's a cure for loneliness. And it's connection. Have you ever been in a crowd and felt alone? Do you know what I mean? Some of us might even feel it when we walk in here on a Sunday morning. We don't really know too many people. We have our spot that we go to, so we go, we sit. But we have this inner feeling of nobody really knows me. Nobody understands me. And sometimes we might even say, if you did know me, or if you did understand me, I would be disqualified. You wouldn't like me anymore. And so we can feel alone in a crowd. And this is one of the guys, let me get his name so I give him credit. Les Carter says this, loneliness is a feeling of separation, isolation, or distance in human relations. Loneliness implies emotional pain, an empty feeling, and a yearning to feel understood and accepted by someone. Do you remember what Brendan said last week about Jesus? The most misunderstood person that ever walked the earth. He knows. He knows what this feels like. Tim Hansel goes on to say this. I don't know why I have to turn around and look. I have it right here. Loneliness is not the same as being alone. Loneliness is feeling alone. No matter how many people are around you, it's a feeling of being disconnected, unplugged, left out, isolated. I don't have to ask for a show of hands of how many people relate to this. It's actually epidemic. And it's epidemic, epidemic because we don't have the connection we're designed to have. The cure for this, you guys, I should say one of the cures, I feel pretty strongly though, is vulnerability. If we are willing to risk vulnerability and if we are willing to step into what we've been talking about over the last six to eight weeks, connection happens and loneliness is cured. It goes away. Kind of heavy to start out with right away, huh? The road to this begins with vulnerability. In today's story, we're going to go to chapter, John chapter 5. And the story has meant a lot to me um, over the past few years. But as I was preparing for, for today, some other things started to come out. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to um, John chapter 5. And we're going to talk about the lame man that was laying by the pool and that Jesus walked up to. And it goes like this. Afterward, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which is really interesting because when you look at a map, Jerusalem is south of Galilee. He's coming from Galilee to Jerusalem. And, and uh, Jerusalem is south. But do you know why it says up? The Sea of Galilee is the second lowest freshwater body no, it's the, it's the lowest body of water ever. And it's only second to the Dead Sea, which is a little bit lower than the Sea of Galilee. It's below sea level. Jerusalem, depending on what part of Jerusalem you're in, is at about 2,500 feet elevation. 
So now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, he goes up to Jerusalem. I got it. Thank you. That was, that was really important to me. But he went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Imagine that there is a pool where people go to receive healing. And you need healing. So you lay by this pool all the time. It's hot. They're they're covered porches so people gather there so they can get out of the sun and that they can have shade. It's a place where probably the same people are there all the time. So there's crowds. Bethesda means house of mercy. This pool is what fed the temple, its water. It was a place of importance. And they had a belief that the first one in the pool would be healed. We'll see, if you ever notice this, here's another side information that really doesn't really matter, but verse 4 isn't in there. And it's because verse 4 is not in the earliest manuscripts. Verse 4 talks about an angel coming down and stirring the waters. And if you're the first one in the water after the angel stirs the water, that's the, folk, that's the belief, the legend, the folklore, then you will be healed. But because that verse wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, they took it out. Isn't that fascinating? I find that stuff fascinating. So maybe that was just for me. But here he is waiting to be the first one in the pool because he's been wants to be healed. There's a lot of people. Can you imagine? It probably smelled. And I don't know how their sanitation system was, but it probably wasn't the greatest. And here he is laying there waiting for 38 years. Verse 6 says this, When Jesus saw him and knew, remember when Mark uh, preached on the Samaritan woman at the well? And Jesus said, I know how many husbands you've had. I feel like this is the same kind of knowing that Jesus knew. Much like that Samaritan woman. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? And so many times we focus on this part about Jesus asking, would you like to get well? Like it depends on him. Like it depends on the man whether he's going to get well or not. Maybe Jesus just wanted him to self-recognize where he was at. I can't, sir, the man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. I have no one. He's laying there for 38 years in the same chair, in the same place, waiting for somebody to bring him to the pool because he can't get there on his own, and he has no one. There's crowds of people. They come and go, but I can't believe that there's not people that have been there also every, every time he's there. They know him. They see him. They maybe step over him. They walk by him. And he sits there in the same spot for 38 years. And he says, I have no one. How sad. How sad. No connection. Oh, God. 
Thank you. <laughs> Ooh, baby. Now we're rolling. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amy. I don't, I feel known right now. <laughs> that's even kind of like the right mixture for me. That's, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. My brother had muscular dystrophy. And when I was reading about this story, um, he lived for a long time in a place called Bethesda down by the state capitol. It was a long-term care unit. And when I got married, he was in that um, Bethesda, in that place. And my husband willingly said, let's go visit him. So from our wedding, in my wedding dress and him in his tux, we went there to visit him so that he wouldn't feel left out. Because at the time, we didn't know how to take him out because he was on a respirator and um, the muscular dystrophy was advancing. So we didn't know how to take him out and go have fun. We learned, later learned we could. My sister and I, actually my sister mostly, learned that we could take him out. But what, why would we do that? There's something in us that is designed to have connection and not feel alone. When we were in Africa, Heidi and I got the opportunity to do some baptisms. And while we were there, they put up a pool that we could go in. And um, there was a a pastor from Southern California, Bob Mooney, that was there. And he was kind of helping people get in and out of the pool. And there was this woman who came up to go into the pool, and we noticed she had a hard time getting in. She was elderly. She, who knows? I'm thinking in our mind, in my bucket, she's probably about 80. But So she goes to get into the pool, and Bob helps her in. We help her you know, sit down, and we baptize her. And when she came up out of the water, she couldn't get up. And Heidi grabs her. And lifts her up and hands her to Bob, who's standing there waiting to receive. And it was such an emotional, powerful moment. And as I was reflecting on it, I mean, my son is there and he was crying and people were crying. And, and I looked at Heidi and I'm like, I'm going to lose it. And, but she just did it. So, okay, we're amazed at her strength, first of all. (laughs) But the more important thing and the powerful thing, and what I was thinking about this week is, it was powerful because it was intimate. It was powerful because we went there. We went to the place where it's like, this is really intimate, but we're going to do it anyways. And she picked her up and handed her to Bob. And everybody's rejoicing. Everyone's taking pictures. Everyone is emotionally moved. That's what we're designed for. That's the kind of stuff that feeds our soul. And the road to get there is vulnerability. We won't get there without it. I'm pretty convinced of that now. I'm going to have to be honest with you, a little vulnerable. When we started this series... My feet were dug in, my heels. I was like, mm, uh-uh, 
No way. I am in control. Well, you know what the truth is? You are in control. But are we going to surrender that control to Jesus and go where he asks us to go? Are we going to surrender that control and follow him no matter what he says? This picture of Heidi holding this woman is exactly what the man in this story was waiting for. He was waiting to be picked up and brought into the pool so that he could receive his healing. And he says, I have no one. I have no place to go. Our need for each other, for other humans to be in our lives at this intimate level of sharing is clearly laid out. We all need a place to go. We, sometimes we have to risk to find that place. For a time, I had that going through my head. I had something that was on my heart, something that was mine um, a while ago, and I said, I, have no to, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to go with this. I don't know who to talk to. And, and, you would th- and I, people would look at me and they're like, you don't have anyone to talk to? And I'm like, yeah, because it's something in here. Something in here said, you don't have anyone. You don't have anyone to talk to. Really what it was is, I don't know if I'm willing to risk it. That's really what was going on. And I did, and I ended up risking it. And I went somewhere, and I talked about it. And I realized that this is familiar pattern for me. So I want to share this pattern with you. We can talk about it. It's not a finished product. But I think that it might, at least I hope, it would be helpful for you guys to understand what it might kind of look like to walk through this vulnerability road. So you can go, okay, that feels familiar. That looks familiar. Now I know what the next step is. You ready for this? So here's the first step. No way. (laughs) There's no way that I am going to risk sharing my thoughts, my story with anyone. I'm not going to do it. And there's this inner battle. You can feel it. You can feel the pull of the Lord saying, but I've called you to it. The story's not your own. This is how you do it. And you're over here going, no way. No way. And you have to reconcile that inner battle. You have a choice to make. Do I follow the Lord? Do I do it to the best of my ability? Do what I think he's nudging me to do? Or do I dig my heels in further? When you're on the road and you're moving forward, the next thing says, okay. Imagine, if you will, in your minds, just for a minute, that somebody says, try this liver and onions. And you're going, no way. Okay, who loves liver and onions in here? Scott, keep your hand down. (laughs) Okay, you got a couple back there. Just to say you don't like it. (laughs) And you're like, no way. There is no way I'm trying that. It looks nasty. It smells nasty. We could throw lutefisk in there if we want to. Uh, There is no way I'm trying it. But somebody is there saying, it's okay. I promise you. It's not what you think. It's going to be okay. And you have somebody that you're with, and they're telling you, I promise you, my mom makes it way better than your mom. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And so you go from this position of no way to, (sighs) okay. And it usually comes with a pretty big push, usually comes with a pretty big sigh. But what you've just done is you surrendered your will to what the Lord is asking you to do. Are you with me? 
Does this make sense? So then after the okay, you have this risk. You're like, okay, here I go. Now, this doesn't mean it's easy just because you've said okay. So you say okay, and you're like, okay, you're sitting across the table from someone, and you're like, this is what the Lord has been talking to me about. And you take a deep breath, and you take a step forward. That's a risk. You don't know how it's going to end up. You don't know if they've learned all eight steps of being a good listener. You don't know if they're going to be with you. You don't know if they're going to judge you. You don't know if, if it's going to work out or not. And this risk is an action. It's not a noun. It's an action. So you risk. You say what's on your mind. And the whole time, if you're like me at all, you're trembling inside going, oh boy, here we go, here we go. And then comes the doubt. Oh no, <laughs> what have I done Oh, I can't believe I said that. Oh, I can't believe I said that out loud. What are they going to say? Oh, and then my self-talk comes in, you know, oh, you idiot. Why can't you keep your mouth shut? Why can't, you know? So, okay, here we go. This is me. Just please tell me somebody's relating to this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just being filleted open up here about. <laughs> so you doubt, what will they think? And then sometimes you could get to a place where you go, oh, I'm never doing that again. I'm never doing that again. That is doubt at work. And unfortunately, most of the time, it's part of the process. It's okay that it's there. What's not okay is that we stay there. So then the next step, again, you have a choice. What am I going to do? Am I going to choose to trust? Am I going to choose to say, Jesus, I know you're here with me because you never leave me? Am I going to choose to go to the scriptures and find the truth about him and his character and what he's asking of me? I'm going to, am I going to trust that I heard him to even say anything in the first place? Am I going to trust the process? And when you can get to that place where you can say, boy, not everything is content and in shalom and perfect peace and perfect alignment within me, but in, in spite of everything not being completely in alignment, I'm choosing trust. It's like the okay. I choose trust. I mean, sometimes I do it with my fists clenched going, okay, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. And I just invoke my will. To say, I'm going to trust him. The scriptures tell me he's with me. The scriptures tell me he's good for me. The scriptures tell me he has good gifts for me. He loves me. I'm his. I'm a child of God. I no longer walk in fear. I'm no longer a slave. I'm trusting that. I'm trusting that. And then you get to this. Resolve. Oh, what a sweet place resolve is after you've been on this journey around this circle. You get to a place where you get to say, okay, I didn't die. <laughs> I'm okay. And I'm looking at them. And I'm looking in their eyes. They're looking at me. Okay, they're okay. Oh, we're okay. We're okay. I didn't lose a friend. I do have a place to go. Jesus is with me. 
and I begin to see freedom. I begin to experience his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I begin to have gratitude for Jesus, and I notice the truth about who I am with him, and that I am safe, and that I'm okay. See, the goal is to take us out of our perspective and get us into his so that we can move more freely, more abundantly, and take more risks with him and go around that circle just a little bit more familiar the next time and the next time and the next time. That's the training. That's the discipline that I think the Lord wants us, one of the things he wants us to get while we stay in this series, that we would continue to be on that process and that our old thoughts, the doubts, the lies, and all of that would not rule, but Jesus would. So I am a teenager in the 1970s, early 1980s, and I have a bike like this. Did anybody have a bike like this? That was an awesome bike. I worked hard to save up money for that bike. I bought that bike, and I was on my way to Wendy Peterson's house. I was going down Edgerton Street. Heidi, when I go to your house, I drive right by this place all the time. So I'm, I'm, I'm cycling, and I go from Edgerton up by 694, down Edgerton Street, over Highway 36. Does anyone know where I'm talking about, St. Paul people? Come on. And so, and then I go, and then there's a hill after you get over 36, and you go down this hill. So I'm riding to Wendy's house. She lives in Maplewood, right over on that side. Do-do-do-do. I was going to make the sound of the Wicked Witch of the West. <laughs> that might work. <laughs> and so I am going there, and the hill, I'm not ready for it. And it takes me, it gets my speed up going way too fast. And I start to panic because I'm going too fast. And I don't want to get hit by traffic. And I don't, I don't know how I'm going to stop. And the bike's too big for me. I can't reach the ground while I'm sitting on the seat. And I don't, come on, you know what I'm feeling, right? And I'm going, oh no, what am I going to do? And before I know it, I hit this. <laughs> I hit this. And then I look like this. Except I didn't have a helmet on. Because it's in the 70s. Nobody wore helmets. Look, we survived. (laughs) And then I probably ended up looking like this. Because I flew over the handlebars and landed in the pine trees. And I literally think I had shoes like that. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I loved those shoes, except mine were blue. My bike ended up looking like this. That's really not my bike. I just found that picture. But it, the wheel was so bent, it was so bent up that I couldn't ride it anymore. So my adrenaline is pumping, my, I'm shaking, and all I know is I got to get to Wendy's. I got to get to Wendy's. So I pick up my bike, and I start walking to Wendy's, and I get to Wendy's. Her mom gives me a ride home with my beat-up bike. Fast forward to being married with kids. Scott and I live in Roseville, just up the hill from Central Park. And when our kids were little, I stayed home with them and did daycare. And I brought them to the park all the time. Well, one day I had this bright idea that we're going to ride our bikes. 
Oh, actually, I wasn't riding a bike. The kids were riding a bike. I haven't ridden a bike in probably 40 years. But anyways, um, the kids were riding a bike. And I remember all of a sudden, all of these, this trauma, this accident, this memory is so familiar to me. It comes flooding back to me while my kids are getting ready to go down the hill of Victoria Street to Central Park. And I'm just gripped with fear. And I am thinking, don't fall. There weren't sidewalks at the time, so don't get hit by a car. Be careful. Do you have your helmet? Do you have your elbow pads? Do you have your wrist pads? Do you have your knee pads? Oh, maybe, maybe you should just get off and walk your bike down the hill. Maybe that would be better. Everything I can do to avoid any kind of risk I'm doing out of fear. Absolutely out of fear. I was full of it. Fear, that is. And through this process of walking this road of vulnerability and what it looks like and what it takes to go around and around and around, fear becomes less. The trust becomes more. You're willing to do it just a little bit more. And so if I had to do that trip down the hill with my kids again, it would look more like this. Here's your helmet. Here's your brake. If you get down a little, get going a little too fast, there's grass on the left, just pull over into the grass. You got this. I'm right here with you. That's what I would do today. It would be different because I've been through the road, been through the circle enough times to know that I can trust. That's what I would tell them. I would say, it's worth it. It's worth the risk. You might be a little scared, but you're going to have fun. You're going to realize that you can do it. You're going to realize you're a lot stronger than you thought you were. It's going to be great. Going through this process helps us take that risk into the future and what the Lord is calling us to do. Look at verse, the next verse in our story. Jesus told them, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. There was a time where I had a healing memory and Jesus was sitting with me. For those of you who don't know what a healing memory is, it was a time that was a difficult time in my life. And so what you do is you invite Jesus into that place to tell you the truth about it, to tell you that you're okay, to tell you that you're loved. And he speaks truth to you in that place. And so I had this sweet, sweet time of sitting with Jesus. And it was just a few years ago, and that was probably 10 years ago, But just a few years ago, the memory changed. And Jesus came to me in my imagination and in my mind and in this healing prayer with other people, so it was very accountable. He came up to me and he went like this. And he said, we've been sitting here long enough. It's time to get up and walk now. And I didn't want to go because sitting there with him was so sweet. It was such a sweet memory. But I eventually said, yes, get up and walk. When the Lord asks you to be vulnerable, to do this honest living with another person, I hope you're inspired to say yes. That's really my hope. Because this 
this walk of vulnerability, if we walk it in such a way that we experience connection with Jesus and with others, we get to turn around and put our hand out to another person. That's the kind of church we can become. That we could turn around and say, let me tell you what happened to me. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Walk with me. Get up. Let's go. This is the right way. This is where you'll find connection. This is where you'll find the character of Jesus. Let's do this. Let's do this together. I think that's the kind of church we can become. And I think that's why Jesus is keeping us in this series. Because that's what he wants for us. Jesus is right there saying, get up and walk. Come on. We can do this. Come with me. Let me lead you. Risk, and I'll show you I'm right here. You are not alone. You are not alone. And it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our perfect guide. You show us the way in a way that's a pace that's good for us. You show us a way, um, in a way that we benefit so greatly if we say yes to what you're doing and what you're saying. Lord, I pray that we would continue to say yes to you so we can walk in life abundantly and freely and not be a slave to our fears or the lies or the doubts or anything that's come in along the way. And I pray that we would ride our bikes freely down the hill with huge smiles on our face, enjoying what you're giving us on our plates because you're with us and you got this. We pray over the offering that it would turn around and do good for someone else. I pray, Lord, that we would become a church that we could know this so well and trust you so much that we would not even think twice about lifting someone else into the pool. In Jesus' name, amen. Through this pain I will confess you are
Deserts will bloom 